Well, welcome back to the Think Education podcast. Um, my host, Judith Lamy, and myself will be, well, I think taking a back seat, perhaps, to our, our, uh, our guest today um, as we uh, have a conversation about some of the interesting and emerging issues within international higher education. So if I hand over to Judith to do the formal introduction, and then we'll, uh, we'll get underway. Thank you, Judith. Thanks very much, uh, Chris. And we're delighted today to be um, joined by uh, with uh, Andrew Andrew Disbury. Uh, I think it's safe to say, Andrew, good friend of mine. We've known yes, each other I... for a few years. <coughs> yes. Um, yes. Exactly. Who, who, who knows? Who knows? We're looking younger every time we meet. Um, I'm just going to say I'm going to say a few uh, few words by way of introduction about um, Andrew, but I'm also then going to pass on maybe to Andrew himself just to tell us a little bit, just to flesh out a little bit more about you know his his um, his background and his experience, uh, which has been huge in the sphere of uh, international higher education, and I think it's safe to say. Andrew, probably right from when you were first at school, when you were studying, you know, um, and then you've said to me before you had a real uh, a, a passion and probably a strong aptitude for, for languages, uh, and and you studied French and German at, and, and Latin at, at school, which must mean that you're very good at crossword puzzles, and I'm not sure I knew that. Um, but I'm going to, you know, pop that, you know, the back at a certain point because I like a good crossword puzzle myself, so you'd be certainly good to have on anybody's team there. Uh, but then you went on to read uh, French and uh, Chinese at, at uh, university, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you where you studied as well in, in, in a moment. Um, and during that time, you went on exchange, um, as I suppose many of us were able to um, at that time, and you went to... China and France, and our, probably France was one where a number of students were going then, but uh, probably China, I would imagine less so, but that maybe can be something you could you can enlighten us on, Andrew, and might, might be completely wrong there. Um, but uh, but then, you obviously, you, you returned to, to China when you graduated, um, and by the time I think you said to me, by the time at the end of the 1980s, you, you'd spent four years in in China, and I suppose that maybe one of those things that sort of really sort of shaped, you know, shaped maybe your your career path from that point. Um, I'm not going to go blow by blow through your life, Andrew, because you know it better than I do. But what I will just, in a sense, summarise by saying is, apart from spending obviously a significant amount of time, time then in China. You did also really, I suppose, in many ways, begin your, your main part of your career as, as an academic. So, you you know, you were 13 years as, a, as an academic and a lecturer in, in international business uh, before then going to work for the British Council, but then also coming back and working in universities. And probably it'd be interesting to, to hear your reflections on that as well, you know, as you, I suppose, became more of the, the, the professional service side and the management side of the university, but also having that experience, that significant experience, been a lecturer in um, international business, you know, one of the very few people at universities that managed to be part of the academic community as part of the professional service and, and, and management community. I know then that you've been admissions director, you were then international director at universities, and then you reached the dizzy heights of executive <laughs> at universities as well as as, um, as pro vice chancellor for, for global engagement. Um, so, and then finally, um, before before well, you say you retire, but I know you haven't really retired. You know, there's lots of things you're still you're still doing, but you're president UK at um, MSM, which is one of the um, an offshore international student recruitment organisation, and I think you know really did a significant amount for them in the in the, the couple of years that, that you were you were with them. Um, so a really, I think, Andrew, fascinating career. Um, lots of experience internationally, lots of experience in the UK as well. Um, and maybe I could just maybe start with 
a question regarding you know your career and maybe the the thoughts of you know was it planned did you decide when you were studying when you were doing you know french and german and latin at school did you think that then you would at a certain point be spending a number of years in china that you would be fluent in in uh, Chinese, uh, and then that you would be working, you know, for so many years at, at, at university and in such, you know, senior positions as well. I mean, was that something that was part of a career path and a plan that you had? Um, well, thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, he sounds like a great guy. I wish I could meet him. <laughs> um, uh, I don't recognise me at all there, but to answer your question, no, it was not a straight line, or my career has not at all been linear. And in fact, uh, as a child, because nobody had ever been to university, that wasn't on the horizon as a, as a possibility. So my ambition, I think, was if I was going to be anything, I wanted to be a French teacher, because I really admired my French teachers at school. In fact, all my language teachers. But uh, I felt that French was my sort of uh, first and first foreign language in home. And I don't know why I was interested in foreign languages, because, um, again, no exposure to them in the family. Um, it was just something, and, and this this goes back to my... So, so you asked me about quizzing and crosswords, um, and I'm actually terrible, because I don't have any general knowledge. I know deeply about two things. One is China, and the other is the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and I, my love for the yeah, Eurovision. You know part. Latin. You know Latin, so you know your bar sinisters and your bar dexters. So what you see, if you're with a, a, a crossword freak, then you know you'd just be able to get. You'd have questions fired at you, and you'd be able to answer them without even realising you would. <laughs> Maybe, but this. My only exposure to foreign languages as a child was when the Eurovision Song Contest popped up on the TV screen. Of course, we didn't record or playback television in those days. You just had to watch it when it was on. And uh, I, as a small child, I could remember the words to songs in languages that I'd never even heard of before for months afterwards. And I just had that ear for those noises mm. um, and those sounds, um, which, which meant that, like, if, like you say about Latin, if you, if you give me a page of text, I can absorb it very quickly. Whereas if you give me a page of number, I have to study it because I don't speak numbers as a native language. Uh, I can do number, but I have to study it much harder. And people can't table figures at a meeting for me because I won't, I won't, I won't look at them. I have to take them away, digest them, and come back with my questions. But if you give, if you table a paper, I'll read it and be able to comment. So I've just always had that sort of facility with with language, and I never thought about going to university. Didn't know anything about it until the teachers started to say. And I think going back to my career not being in a straight line, I've been really lucky over the years, to have had a, a considerable number of influential people who just gave me an idea or gave me an opportunity and gave me a chance, and off I went. And then, the, so, so early on, it was teachers saying to my parents, well, of course, you will go to university, you know. And my parents going, oh, okay, that's very nice. And, you know, uh, my parents, typical of, I think, working-class people of their background, they'd like to do what people in authority said, so when they said, yes, he'll go to university, they went, okay, that's all right. That's all. No, okay, we'll do that. Um, and then when I started to apply to do languages, I couldn't decide which university to go to, didn't know anything about universities. There was one teacher who said, I, I was thinking of, you know, what other languages I might do with uh, French, because I thought I could do an additional one to the ones I'd done at school. But my, my, my world view was quite small, so I, I mean, really had European languages in my, in my thinking. And one teacher said to me, well, you know, China's going to be very big one day. And there was one course at the University of Leeds in the whole country where you could do Chinese with French. Hmm. So I thought, well, that saves me to choose university. I'll just go there then. <laughs> so, so, and that's what I did. Um, and then, it, you know, all the way through... Um, there's, it, there's been a series of very influential people who've who've said something or given me a chance. Or like when I've applied for jobs, no, it's not been a straight line. I've never gone for a job and thought, that's my dream job. I thought, I probably can do most of that. And I should think until my very last university job, I, I'd been confident that I knew how to do 75% of the things I applied for. But there was still 25% that I hadn't done before. But I had transferable skills that I could demonstrate. I probably could learn it. And the people who hired me also took that chance. 
and that punt on the fact that I probably could do the 25% I hadn't got in my CV. And it was the very last job that, that uh, vice principal role, it was the first time I'd been to a job interview where I was so confident that I knew all of the aspects of the work because of all that I built up in my experience um, that, 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 you know, I really felt, yes, global engagement is a whole package that I've got under my belt in some way, shape or form. So, yeah. It's a fascinating journey, you know, um, Andrew, I think, really. And and I suppose um, one thing I'm interested to learn a little bit more about is is probably the the role of that mobility that you had and the time that, that you had it. As I say, at that time, probably there were students, I recall myself going on an exchange to... To, to Germany, you know, and I know friends were going to France and people were coming over to, to the UK. And that, I wouldn't say it was commonplace, but it happened more frequently. You know, it happened at schools and because we were studying languages at schools, you know, and, and it happened at university. Um, but but probably, you know, out with Europe, it was less, you know, less less yeah. common at that time. Certainly, as you say, you know, you've explained that sort of thing. But... That, that opportunity, though, then, to, to, to go overseas, that student, in a sense, then, student mobility opportunity. I mean, can you, can you reflect and no. think back as to what that was like from a young lad who had not a- been that far before? No. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, ha- I had been, we hadn't been abroad on holiday, but we had been to Canada because my eldest brother moved there when I was a child. So we'd been to an English-speaking foreign country uh, as a family. But I think I benefited from two key things. Um, One was, of course, um, free tuition and maintenance grants for going to university. So that enabled me to go to university without um, taking on a huge amount of debt. Um, And the second thing was, in terms of student mobility, I benefited from the existence of international agreements and programs, institutional programs and bilateral diplomatic programs, which facilitated student mobility and without those um, systems and frameworks to slot into, I would never have gone. If I'd, had to, if I'd had to work out how to get to China by myself, I just wouldn't have got there. Because I wouldn't have had the nous, the money, the skills to do it. But um, a couple of years before I went to university, China uh, was just opening up to the outside world. And part of that was a Minister of Education had been to the United Kingdom and signed a bilateral exchange agreement and said... So, so then the UK was able to offer to some universities, some places, to participate in this exchange. And the University of Leeds was one that said, yes, we'd like to do that. And so we were pretty much, if we weren't the first, we were one of the first cohorts to go from Leeds to Fudan University in Shanghai. And it was all set up for us. And again, my parents being very, you know, obedient. When I went with the university letter and said, I've got to go to China, Mum and Dad, they went, oh, that's nice, dear. And, you know, and of course, it was funded and there was, so therefore the money was there. And my parents had faith the university would keep us safe and sound. Um, and, and off we went, you know, into deepest, darkest, quite a, quite closed China. We're in a university where there were probably two telephones for the whole institution at the time. You know, uh, no internet, no mobile phones or anything like that. So, you know, those old, you remember those blue thin airmail letters that you used to? Yes. So that was the communication. So, so it was the system and the agreements that enabled me to do it. And um, what you then did with that was up to you, but the opportunity was presented. So I've been so fortunate in my life subsequently to work in places where I could recreate those opportunities for other people by having bilateral agreements or even when I worked at the British Council doing more of the, of the high-level policy work that enabled these institutional agreements to, to sit under some kind of um, framework. So, um, and, and then also, in the days now that we live in with health and safety and this, that and the other, to, to, to run exchange programmes and outbound mobility programmes in institutions where, at, you know, within a couple of phone calls, whenever there's an emergency around the world, whether it's meteorological like a tsunami or whether it's political like a coup somewhere, um, to have insurance teams and study abroad teams who know exactly where every, not only every student is, but every member of staff. Now, I've worked at universities where I, I personally approved all the international travel of every single colleague 
So therefore, I knew where they were, and we could get them home uh, in ways that weren't were unimaginable before, with you know poor communications and, and so on. So I feel like I've you know I've been able to give back more more than I got, and I feel I'm glad I was able to do that. And do you um, do you think I'll, I'll hand over to to Chris in a moment? But um, do you think therefore, Andrew, that that's given you an opportunity maybe to um, you know, to understand how some of the students might be feeling, you know, to, and I know this is going to sound rude and it's not meant to sound rude because I went, I was in, I, I was in Japan myself in the 80s, you know, so a long time ago. Um, but, um, but I can still remember that feeling of first going there and I can still remember coming back and I can still remember so much about it even though it was such a long time yeah. ago, and I can still remember some feelings about it. So even though it was a few years ago, you know, do you think that, that it has given you that opportunity, you know, to, to, to think about that experience and to have that empathy with other students or, or staff that oh we've got goodness. now as well? In, uh, in ways you can't imagine. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's a couple of answers to that, really. One is about the whole, because I did worked in admissions for home students and international students, and I worked at a number of institutions where first-in family students were a large proportion of the undergraduate intake. Um, just talking at open day to parents about, you know, showing, I quite often used to do open day talks, which included a picture of me and my mum and dad at Gatwick Airport in 1981. And the look of, you know, trust on my parents' faces, they stuck this innocent looking boy on the plane to go to China. So just to say, you know, I've been there, we've done that. Uh, going so, so even to home students who are worried about going, you know, parents worried about their kids going to uni. Having been a first in family to go to university, you, you of course you empathise in a in a in a very direct way. But then when you're talking about outbound study abroad, then you can say it's okay, you can do this because and we've got all these systems and and we've got these scholarships or this funding that can support you. But then the incoming international students, you know, I specifically used to travel to pre-departure briefings in the hottest part of the year in India to shake the hand of mum, dad, granddad, granny, auntie, uncle, who were funding the master's degree of that one person who was going to get on a plane. And I would say to them, I'm going to be the first person they see when they arrive. Because, you know, and now you've met me. Um, because I think that was so important at a human level, because wherever, whatever culture or language uh, or background that somebody comes from, a, a parent is a parent and they have the same concerns about, you know, entrusting the person and the funding that goes with that person to get on the plane and go somewhere that they've never been themselves. So, yes, absolutely, it enabled me to empathise in a really authentic way. Thanks very much. I um, my voice, I was quite passionate about but, it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it also... You know, shows that you 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 know when you're talking about it, you're going back and thinking about it at that time as well, aren't you? You know, it makes you think of you've done parents some lovely standing there about you going. Yeah, and on the back of that, and having that, maybe able to help colleagues see because you know, sort of, not every colleague comes from the same background. Obviously, it's a silly thing to say, but enabling colleagues to understand. You know, I remember doing a session with library staff who said to me, "What do you think international students feel about us?" when they come into the library, I said, they're, they're scared. Mm. <laughs> what? I said, because it's really difficult. Even though you make it easy and you know it's your job to help them access the library, they think you're a person in authority that's going to criticise them for not knowing how the library works. You know, and that, that's how I used to feel. <laughs> so, you know, um, but we did some lovely projects as well about, um, like, for example, um, my, my last university in Scotland had four Scottish campuses and a London campus. And of course, London, you know, we were in four quite poor towns, some of the poorest towns of the United Kingdom. And people often went to universities simply because we were their local institution and they wouldn't have travelled to go to university for undergraduate home study. But because you had this London campus, which was inevitably populated with international students, but was in a inter very international city, we could actually do short term, you know, people couldn't study abroad for a semester or a year, but they could have a week in London and engage with our own alumni who worked in international uh, organisations in London, had very glo lo global lives, and they could have, have a snapshot 
into that, which wasn't a study abroad experience because it was just, you know, going to London for sure. So, you know, some lovely things like that. Um, and also pairing up, because we all know it's difficult to get British students to go abroad in the first place. So the minute you get the glimmer of, you know, interest in someone's eye, you snap them up and you get them into buddy schemes or mentoring schemes for international students or tandem learning schemes and things like that. And then you can give people, on, it's that internationalisation at home peaks, isn't it? Giving people a flavour of, of something without them actually having left. Hmm. Yeah, one of the um, one of the the sort of key key sort of strands of, of one of the chapters that we're looking at in the book that you're kindly um, contributing to the professionals um, reflections uh, chapter, um, Andrew, is on sort of patterns of, of student mobility, you know, and 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 changes and how maybe it's changed over the last few years and. Um, and where it might go from here when you think of Brexit and when you think of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But thinking about what you've just been talking about, it almost sounds as though that could have been yesterday. And it almost sounds as though that could be tomorrow as well. You know, all of the things that you've mentioned um, still seem to really hold hold true to now. Do, do, you, do you think that? Do you think that there's I been a fundamental shift in sort of mobility patterns and expectations or do you think it's very much the same as it ever was? Well, um, I think the the instruments that facilitate, you know, international mobility might change and, the, the, you know, the, the countries we're friends with might change, the geopolitics might change, but the human instinct will remain. And attached to the human instinct, that desire to, you know, I mean, one of the things I liked learning foreign languages for was to talk to people. And I wasn't that much interested in reading literature in Chinese. I wanted to go and talk to people. <laughs> and as it turned out, marry one of them. But <laughs> I came later. Um, but, you know, um, so, so that desire, that human desire for connection and for excitement and inspiration I think will remain, and the, and the instruments will jog along, enabling different types of mobility to different places potentially, depending on who's friends with who at the time. But I think we'll always have that design. Like I said, parents are parents, and 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 people are people, and that's what's really struck me. What after having had a lot of experience in China, I began to do more international education work in India and the United States and Europe, and it. It really struck me how much of it is transferable skills, uh, and I, I was—I think it helped me because I'd had a very extreme intercultural experience, an extremely different intercultural experience to begin with at a very young age. So I found adapting to other places probably quite fast. Do you know what I mean? If, I, if you'd gone to a neighbouring country at the beginning, more, more, more different countries or further away countries would have been. Mm -hmm harder to acclimatise to over time. Like, for example, I never got jet lag, and I think that's down to the fact that my earliest international travel was long haul. Mm. So I'd, I'd never done short haul. So, you know, I didn't know what that was like. Um, so I think, I think probably that helped me. Um, although one thing that struck me, this is a bit of an aside, is when I started to do a lot of work in the United States around student recruitment and exchanges and academic projects, um, I used to come home very tired, and I couldn't work out why, because it wasn't as far, wasn't really going as far as I would do to China. And then I realised that when I was in the United States, somehow I was using the part of my brain to speak English, but it's the part of my brain that speaks Chinese. And I was concentrating really hard on speaking English as a foreign language. Hmm. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought about the fact that I was doing it, because, you know, it's, it's, it's America, that's not different. You don't have to acculturate because we're the same, aren't we? But, oh no, we're not. It's quite different. So that's why I was tired. Because I was, I was, I, I had kind of like it's a bit like having your phone battery over mm. on high performance without realizing you've got it switched on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so if you think now of of students and let's say sort of post COVID and and the. Um, Something else I'm, I'm writing about in one of the chapters as well is uh, looking at sustainability uh, mm. and you know, 
should we be traveling as much can we do as much you know online or virtually as as we can sort of face to face i mean chris is much more the expert on online learning and micro credentials than i am so he might want to pick that up bit up with you in a moment but um you know do, do you think there's a place for us not going to places anymore that that we can and should be engaging more in virtual mobility or is that something that might mean that you experience it a little bit but then you know once you've turned your screen off well you're back home again so you definitely don't have any jet lag you definitely don't have any jet lag and i i must admit there are lots and there's lots of there is a lot about the online world that we experienced during the pandemic that i absolutely loved um, the functionality of having a one-hour meeting that was only about the topic on the agenda and not about anything, no, nobody going off at a tangent because people tend not to when they're concentrating on Zoom or Teams or whatever it is. Um, the fact that I didn't have to spend an hour before or after the meeting in a room eating curled up university sandwiches and drinking lukewarm university beverages with people I didn't particularly like. I started to count up how many hours I'd spent doing that Whereas, you know, just having this functionality of getting the work done and then going off, I began to really enjoy that. So I, I think, when, but however, this year, uh, resuming EAIE, European Association for International Education meetings in person, uh, we all got together in the same hotel that we'd last met in two years before. And in the lobby, we started to look at each other and people outstretched their arms in a kind of, are we going to hug type of moment? And then, then we did hug. And then one, la one lady from Finland said to me as she was hugging me, she said, oh, she said, Zoom is cold, bodies are warm. <laughs> so then, you know, there is, there is something very human about getting together, going back to what I was saying about our human, you know, um, uh, impetus for, 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 for meeting. So I think it's deciding for the future what are the abs absolutely priority high-value reasons for travelling to meet each other. And I've, I've heard this from colleagues in Norway. Since, since people in, in education managed to pivot to online very rapidly because of the pandemic, apparently the Norwegian uh, Ministry of Education and funding agencies and so on have been really questioning people putting in travel applications, saying, well, do you really need to go? Why do you need to go? Really prove that you need to be there. And that turned, that's for in, inside Norway as well as tra in travelling externally. And I think that's right because then, then the actual physical effort and expense of traveling should lead to something really, you know, extra hmm. because you were there in person, not something you could have easily done instrumentally on it in an hour. And, and I think that's what we've got to try and, uh, uh, and that's a sustainability bit as well, isn't it? It's like, why do I physically, what is the reason I need to be there? What is going to be different if I'm actually there uh, as opposed to the, you know, the, the way we've managed to work in the last couple of years? And I think the same with, um, you know, with at, at MSM, when I was working at MSM, the company, when the pandemic began, was a, a company that got students to go from home country to host country to destination university. And that was its business. And of course, that was severely interrupted <laughs> because of the pandemic. So then we got into all sorts of product development about what might be the alternatives. And, you know, could the students go to third country uh, in some kind of T&E arrangement that was either uh, provided by the destination university or facilitated by the company itself using credentials that were from a range of partner institutions? Or um, what was the online offer going to be? And then how could we put together um, programs of work that might include study at home in a host university, host country university, study at home in a TNE arrangement, study in a third country in the TNE arrangement, and study in the destination country at the host university, or online for any bit of those. And what might the whole program look like that could be that could have a, a, a certificate at the end that was recognised by employers or by governments as equally valid to three or four years in the destination country. So we began to put together that um, that vision. And, but, but for me, it wasn't the first time working on it because, you know, I have worked at universities that have had, for example, MBA programs, which through TNE 
almost were running simultaneously across all continents. Now, and the vision that we tried, once we got the TNE arrangements uh, in place so that the MBA was running in all these places, we then began to experiment with cohorts moving around semester by semester. We didn't quite, by the time I left, we hadn't quite got the vision up and running. But the idea was that somebody could join in one country and do three semesters, but they didn't all have to be in the same place. And they'd still got the same MBA. So, you know, if you can add in a bit of online or a bit of home or, you know, and, and make it flexible so that whatever happens in geopolitics or pandemics or, or, or you know, volcano eruptions, um, uh, the students can pivot, then I think that, you know, that we've got to make the best out of what we've been able to do in the last couple of years. Because let's face it, a university, if it had planned a strategy to go online, would have taken 10 years to achieve it. And they did it in a few months. <laughs> so grab it. Do you know what I think is really different, though? When, when at university, you've had, you've, I'm sure you both have the same experience. When you're at a university meeting, sitting around a table, talking about social media policy or IT policy with a load of learned senior leaders, most of them are not, don't know what they're talking about because they're not users of it very much. And so they're all like coming and hiring about whether the students should be, international students should be allowed to use social media to talk about their experiences on campus in their own language because might they say the wrong thing, you know. And we're all very worried. What was different in the pandemic was every single person had to work in the same way. And leaders saw the benefit of technology themselves because they were using it. I think that was a really big difference. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Andrew. And, and I suppose, like you say, if you, if you think of it ourselves, you know, how we, we had to change and shape the way we worked immediately because there was no other option, was there? But probably for some of those things, certainly for some of them, you know, if, if it was connecting to social media or to, to aspects of technology, you know, you, you've, got, you've got young students from school and university. That's how they've grown up. That's their life, isn't yes. it? They, they, whereas we felt that you all of a sudden had to switch to doing something. They were like, well, this is what I've been doing for my whole life. You know, and, and I it's totally right. I mean, um, I've said for many, many years that people my age go online, but pe younger people are online. Yeah. <laughs> it's not much different. And I think actually for somebody my age, I'm more online than most of my friends. My friends go on. You can see when they're doing their Facebook because you get 1,400 messages all at once because they're doing yeah. that for the last, you know, they're doing half an hour of Facebook. Whereas, you know, if you are online, you're just, you're just doing your social medias as and when they occur. And I think you're absolutely right with that, because this, it's not a... Especially those that had endure school uh, online, which must have been, I think, for, for pupils and parents and teachers, quite hellish. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, that's, that's a reality, isn't it? Do you think it makes... And I'm, I'm conscious that, you know, neither of us are part of this demographic that we're going to start talking about, in a sense, but, but we are sort of reflecting, I suppose, on our, on our students. But do you think it means, therefore, though, that certainly with our you know, undergraduate students or early sort of early postgraduate students, let's say, who have come through this way of learning, that they don't take as long as we might have taken to, to either learn something or connect in with something. I mean, j just by way of, of sort of, I guess, both example, you know, when, when you and I were both first going over, going overseas, there was no internet there was nothing. There was nothing where we could go and have a look online and see pictures of where we were going or what it was going to look like or have any experience. What you did is you went to the library. Didn't you? you went to the library and you checked out usually an atlas to find out where you. Well, you might have an atlas or one of those spinny globes uh, in your home, but you know. You, and I guess now there's so much information already out there at, at people's fingertips that you almost go from being a, we're looking at it from a languages point of view, you almost go from being a beginner with zero to an intermediate pretty much immediately because you've just got so much information that can come at you. And I, and I don't know about you, Andrew, and indeed Chris as well, but I, I think I can sometimes process a certain amount of that information, but then after a bit, I go into overload. I just can't. I can't take any more through that through that sort of route, you know. So I don't know whether, in a sense, we might feel as though students need or would benefit more from actually physically going to places 
and having that experience for a period of time. And indeed, that might be the case, but maybe that period of time for them doesn't have to be as long as it might necessarily have been for us. Um, when you were when you were um, first sort of talking about that, I began to think uh, about um, you know the, probably the acquisition of knowledge in a sort of a didactic way is probably quite quick. In on and Chris, I'm sorry, you'll know much more about this than I do, but probably the you know the transmission of knowledge and the acceptance of knowledge is quite fast in the modern ways in which we can learn and or do our own research for you know travel as you just said. But I began to think, as you, before you were, you, you were finishing that point, I wondered about synthesis and application, you know, of really, you know, deeply ingesting what you've understood and then being able to use it. And that might be where um, the actual added value of physical travel might have a peak. It's, no, you know, not just knowing something, it's going to do something with it, which the physical experience can give you in no, in no way that can be replicated well, perhaps some ways could be replicated online, but you know, I was just thinking also, um, we used to talk about a, a curve of you know experience of study abroad, and I've forgotten the name of the author who came up with it, so forgive me. But that bit about, you know, you first get somewhere when you start, do you know who, who, who I mean? When you, um, you, you have a, a real high when you first go abroad because you've got there and you've had all the adrenaline to, to pack and get ready and get on the plane and get there. And the first... Everything's new and the food's great and the people are lovely and everyone's smiling and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, two or, th- two or three months in, you have a slump where you're really depressed because nothing's like as good as it is at home and you miss everybody and blah, 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 blah. And then gradually it builds back up again. And, you know, you said about being in, in, the, in, in the same time I was in early in China. And in the first six months in China, if you'd given me a plane ticket to come home, I would have got on it and I would never have gone back. Um, but it wasn't till I, one day when the weather was getting better in the, you know, after the harsh winter and it was spring. And I thought there's billions of people here. I can't just, I can't just, you know, dismiss them all. I've got to go. And I went out and stood on a street to allow myself to be approached by somebody who said, hello, you are American, because it happened 3,000 times a day. And, and we'd all been running away from it. And I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make a friend with the first person, and I did, I made a lifelong friend, the first person who said to me, hello, you are American. And, um, you know, that, that was, so, so that kind of experience, you can, I think you can only get through longevity being in the, in, in the place, can't you? you don't know. It's interesting because I had almost exactly the same response to Judith's question. Um, and I think that the, there's so much about the online experience that makes us believe uh-huh. we've experienced it. So there's so much with the immediacy and the urgency and the validation that comes that we feel that we are part of something or we, you know, we're within something. And yet there is, that is no substitute for the, on the ground, as you say, you know, the, the, the reality, the fear, the joy, the everything that goes along, along with that. And, um, uh, yeah, just the way, you know, as you said, you, the way we planned. So, you know, you used to have to write the letters home and wait. You used to have to get traveler's checks and plan for the money that you thought you might need. You know, you used to have to plan against unknowns, really. And now it's, I have the conversation with my wife. It's like, how did we ever meet up with anybody in university without technology? How did we, how did we do that? Like, you know, and it was just a case of, she said, well, we'd take me to eight. And if they weren't there, they weren't there. And that was that. And then you, you know, and it's just, we've, we've maybe lost you know, so actually almost the, the internationalization, the travel is not just the international itself. It's the actual life skills. It's the being in the world. Um, and I, I really liked your point, Andrew, about um, the difference between you being in, in mainland China and being in the United States. And, and I found there's something very freeing about being in a country where I cannot read the, the alphabet, where it's simply you just have to let go because there are countries I'm in where I, I can almost understand or, you know, like, as you say with America, yeah. I'm, I'm almost the same, except I'm, the differences are maybe more stark because I don't feel that the differences should be there. And yet when you're completely displaced, there, there is something genuine that changes about you, I think, that if, you, if you're prepared to, you know, ride the highs and the lows, as you say. 
That's a very important point, actually, because there's a vulnerability which you can't get online, I think. And I found this with extremely senior people, government ministers and secretaries of states, who step off a plane in Beijing and suddenly become children. Mm. Who needed to be <laughs> shepherded here, there and everywhere. And of course, they lived a life which was run, by, run for them, largely, for other people with itineraries and yeah. schedules. And so I accepted that. But it was just the... Um, it's just settling into not being able to do things because the yeah. language barrier is there. And Ju- so Judith and I have spoken. Judith and I have spoken about this like several times in the past, where that experience as an individual makes you much more empathetic and sympathetic to international students in another country. Where if we have been in a country where our intelligence appears dramatically diminished because our communication is hampered, and you can then be put yourself in the position of a student who is scared, knows what they want to say, but can't say it or can't express it. And, you know, it, I think it changes the way we view the community of travellers, right? Oh. It's, 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 a, it's, a, uh, it's a connection, right? It's, it's a helpful... I, I, can, I can talk forever on that point, Chris. Um, the, um, the people who complain about international students' levels of English tend to be monolingual themselves. Yeah. And, and, and maybe speak only one dialect of English mm. themselves uh, and have one register of English themselves, but want up the students to perform all kinds of tricks in a foreign language. And so when they say things like, oh, well, the medical information should be in English because they should be able to speak English or this and the other. Well, fair enough. But, you know, I, I, when you speak a foreign language, it doesn't mean to say you, first of all, know the medical vocabulary that you might need if you were ill. And secondly, when you feel ill, you don't feel like feeling a foreign, speaking a foreign language. Yep. And, and, you know, I could get my microwave instructions in six languages, but I'm going to read them in English because it's easier. Even if it's bad English, I'll make more sense of it. Yeah. You know, so just give people a break. So I, I've, I often used when I was lecturing, you know, you'd do small group work and put people together, wouldn't you? And then um, you'd, get, you'd get English-speaking students excluding Chinese-speaking students quite often. Yeah. And not, not letting on the jokes or giving them a break on the language side of things. So I'd just go up to a small group. And I'd start to talk to the group in Chinese about the work they were doing. And then the British students would just look at me, gone out, and I'd, just after a while I'd turn around and say, that's how they feel all the time. Yeah. Give them a break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think yes, I mean, we, we, we've... I think, well, I've often thought, actually, about, um, you know, this problem of getting British students to go overseas to study is possibly partly rooted in the fact that it, we do go abroad quite routinely for holidays, for example. So, you know, a kid might have had loads of it, uh, European holidays as a child before going to university. So it isn't such a big thing. Mm-hmm. Going abroad isn't such a big deal. And maybe we need have a job of work to do about why going to study abroad is different from, you know, previous experiences that had. Yeah. Maybe as well, though, is what you were mentioning um earlier on certainly struck, struck a chord with me you know about that point when you were first in China and you know if somebody I because I, I was certainly the same in in Japan the first month fantastic it was so different it was so exotic it was so warm <laughs> you know it was I was in Okinawa you know it, everything was just in, it was a holiday it was the holiday period of anything I suppose or the honeymoon period as we'd say wouldn't we um but when, it pro- when I probably started doing some learning, you know, I was working there, and when I probably started to, to, to be having the most challenging point was a point when if somebody had given me a ticket, I'd have gone home, for sure. You know, I probably spent more time sitting on my little balcony, grizzling and missing everybody at home than, than anything else. And, and as you were saying, you know, at that time, you know, you, you wrote letters and you had to wait a month for at least for, for something to come back. Uh, we would speak on the phone, but we'd speak on the phone once a month, you know, and that was it. And and yet, goodness me, I'm so pleased that I stayed and I learned and, and you know, stayed a couple of years and, and I think learned more through that. And I suppose, you know, going back to then your point that you, you've just made in terms of people do travel more now, but it's all, but it still is quite superficial, isn't it? You can go somewhere for a certain period of time. And when you know you're going to go back, when you know that you, 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 
you don't have to put yourself, I suppose you don't have to put yourself as far out of your comfort zone as you might. And in, in a sense, the further out you can put yourself, the more that you can learn and the more you push that, that boundary out even further, don't you? And allied to that, people who've got jobs which require them to travel a lot, you know, I've had this experience, I'm sure you both have as well. You wake up in the morning and you think, I know it's a Marriott, I just don't know which city I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a branded experience that you have from yeah. place to place. Yeah. A- absolutely, yeah. And actually, on, on that note, um, it will be uh, interesting to get your reflections. One thing we've been, Chris and I have been talking about are... Um, are universities that have overseas mm. campuses, you know, and the uh, and as well as their campus, let's say, in their main location. Um, mm. So, I mean, you've mentioned about university, you know, that you worked in, in in Scotland that had its Scottish campus, but also its its London campus, and then you've got obviously other institutions that have got campuses, you know, all over the world. Now, with with um, with hotels, the hotels almost pride themselves, don't they, on being the same experience, the same excellence, the same level of experience wherever you go. That when you do walk into a Marriott, you walk into a Marriott, you know what you're going to get. You know, you know there's an excellent mm. level of experience there. Mm. We're not getting sponsored, by the way, for Marriott. <laughs> right. Same for the Hilton, same for various I am sure. But, you know, you, you almost pride yourself on that, don't you? But universities... Oh, that's a different matter, isn't it? Entirely old. What do you think? What are your reflections on, you know, the identity of the overseas campus? And indeed, therefore, then, the identity for a, for a student. You know, if you're studying at a university that's got a, a campus somewhere else, but you're studying either in your you know, locality or somewhere closer to you. What, what, really, what are your thoughts and reflections around identity and international campuses? Well, um, that, that, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because in the early, in the noughties, when I was working at the British Council in Beijing and student numbers to the UK were vertical almost year on year, um, camp- colleagues would come to China from UK universities and talk about, you know, learning and teaching and how to accommodate Chinese learners in such numbers in the classroom. And, and I was, having been a lecturer immediately prior to that job, where at a university that had, you know, healthy numbers of international students from different places, um, I was quite wary of, of adapting learning and teaching to suit Chinese learners on campus in Britain, because otherwise, how, what was that education that they paid to go for? to the UK for, or had they paid to go for a very British education? Now, of course, actually, that's quite a naive view because, you know, the people in the classroom are going to change the experience of learning and teaching wherever they come from. So, and it needs to adapt to the people who are there so that everyone can get the best out of it. So I I get that. But I do think if somebody has signed up, like, you know, how Scottish is a London campus? Um, you know, we were running four-year bachelor's degrees in a country where the three-year degree is the norm. So, so yeah, that was quite complicated, actually. In the end, we ended up using our summer trimester to accelerate the programme so that the bachelor's degree wouldn't take physically longer than going to an English university did. But then that puts pressure on the learners because they're, you know, they're, they're having to absorb it faster to get through four years in three. So did, did you think that the on that example then of your of the London campus there do you think the students were coming to your university but they just happened they just had a base in London so that was sort of useful or do you think that the reason they were coming was because of the London connection really but they did want to have that experience of a Scottish university they were definitely coming to London to study and wouldn't have come to our Scottish campuses alternate if, if the London one hadn't been there. Uh, but they did want it to be distinct. So we did start to add in elements of Scottish flavour, festivals, you know, and when there were holidays that we were celebrating at the Scottish campuses, we, we included the London campus. And, and, the, and the biggest thing we did before I left, we did a road trip. Uh, which we filmed for social media and promotion and marketing purposes. But we took London students by bus 
all the way up the up England, and then they visited all the Scottish campuses and were met and fated, uh, you know, and that was something we collaborated on with the Students' Union. And it was actually really good. And we did it because, you know, it was a fun thing to do, but also it gave them... But, but actually, the connection really, it was a great way... We had lots, as I mentioned, we had lots of alumni based in London who hadn't really been fostered so much over the years. And this was a great way of asking them to give something back by not only working with the international students at the London campus, but the Scottish students who might be able to visit the London campus for that kind of international experience I was talking about. So actually it provided a little community atmosphere that was very distinct once we got it going. And we set up a kind of business board of alumni who would come in and judge MBA and DBA uh, presentations and stuff like that and, and, and do, in, do internships and that kind of stuff. So it did create a community which was quite, I thought it was quite unique. I don't know how Scottish it was, but it was quite unique. <laughs> Because when, when you were in, um, obviously you were at the University of Leeds when you studied, and then when you went to study, you were at the University of Leeds, but then you were studying at Fudan University. Yeah. Where, where did you, where was your identity then? Where did you feel you were part of when you were studying? Um, hmm. Leeds, because it was a year abroad mm. as part of that degree programme. And... The other thing about being a foreigner in China, and I'm sure you have the same experience in Japan, your foreignness is pointed out to you, as I said, about 3,000 times a day. So you can't constantly yes. where you're living. But, you know, you can't really... You don't... The nicest thing that ever happened to me, one of the nicest things that ever happened to me in my life, I was at Singapore airport speaking Mandarin to a young sales assistant, and she said, are you Singaporean? <laughs> Nobody in China is ever Chinese. <laughs> That was the happiest. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We certainly in um, in, uh, in in Japanese there's a word gaijin, which is foreigner, you know. And frequently, I you know, I would get somebody on the other side of the street, street shouting out gaijin da, gaijin da, like you know, you like, oh, thank you, thank you for pointing out that I am indeed a foreigner. I do know that, but yes, but it did, and I suppose because I wasn't there. Uh, as, as certainly not as long as you were in in China, and and although I did go backwards and forwards, it was it was for for study or for work and things like that. It wasn't you know for a prolonged period of time. Therefore, and, and spoke the language a little bit, but in no way near the kind of proficiency that you have. So I so I actually felt like a foreigner. You know what I mean? It wasn't even that I I I was. Yes. Um, you know, even when I went back ten years later, I, I still didn't. I still did feel as though I was somebody visiting, albeit that I, you know, do. I, I adore going to see different places and experiencing them, and, and and in a sense, reflecting back, I I appreciate the vulnerability and the times of concern. You know, when when I wanted to go back home, basically. Um, but I did always feel foreign. The, I mean, that's a really good point. The, you know, I was talking about using a language facility to um, uh, to build empathy within international students earlier in the classroom and, 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 and to help British monolingual students understand the need to be sympathetic to international students' language facility. And I think that is good. Um, but I think probably the downside for me is that because I have learned to feel quite at home in in China itself, mainland China itself, um, I'm a bit impatient with other people who just don't get it. <laughs> it's like, come on, catch up. <laughs> so yeah. that, that is a downside. I'm, I'm quite, but 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 you know, as a plea for people to learn other languages and to get cultural experiences, the thing that I've noticed, I am able to do, which is most useful in business contexts, is eavesdrop. <laughs> and if you go to China, I mean, it's what my example is China. If you go to China and rely on the Chinese to provide you with an English-speaking interpreter for meetings, you will only hear what they tell you. Uh, whereas I've sat in countless meetings, listening to what they're saying to each other before it's translated into English, working out what they're saying, but also working out what the real problem is and why they're saying it, 
And then being able to turn to my side and say, oh, well, actually, what we need to do is A, B, and C, because that will then stop them worrying about D, E, and F. And allowing my side to reply correctly to the question that was put to them by the time, by, by the time it's been translated. And that, that has probably paid for my degree in countless times. <laughs> yeah, and that power of that power of languages, and uh, well, it's sad, isn't it? Probably a sad state of of some parts of education systems across the world that there aren't so many opportunities for youngsters to be learning languages and and therefore applying them in lots of different ways. I mean, I think that it, it still does take place. Of course, it does. You know, in in many schools and colleges, but in some it doesn't, and Oh, it's not just about the language, is it? It's about so I've, much more. We've had so many rewarding experiences, though, because we did, because I'm so old and have been doing this for so long. Because years ago, we did put quite a lot into schools programmes, for example. Mm -hmm. So I have been really lucky to go to some meetings where there are young professionals who go, oh, my God, you gave a speech while I was on a school trip. And that may, and look, I'm learning Chinese, I'm working in China yeah. now, you know, and that's, that's just brilliant. It makes a difference, doesn't it? It goes back to, to what you were saying earlier on, actually, about, about people, about the impact of people on your life, about how they can sh shape and influence your life, you know, um, mm. that, that teacher at your school that, that said, you should do Chinese because, you know, it looks like China could be, you know, quite influential in the future. I think it's safe to say that teacher was I was, also, I was also able to pay that back, actually, a little bit because years later, when I was doing admissions at a university, like me, that family had an unusual surname. And I received a telephone call from an applicant uh, and uh, who was quite worried about their admission. And so as the admissions tutor, I was able to speak to them and say, no, that's no, all fine. Don't worry about it. It's all great. No, blah, blah, blah. It's fine. And I clocked the name and I clocked the address. And I said, once we've finished, I said, do you mind me asking you a personal question now that we've got all your situation sorted and you're happily admitted? No, that's no, fine. I said, is your dad called Roger? <laughs> and he went, what? Oh, you're good. <laughs> and indeed, it was the son of the teacher who'd said, why don't you do Chinese? Excellent, excellent. Well, for all, all of those people out there who are teachers at, at schools and in particular, actually, it really makes a difference, doesn't it, actually? Sometimes there are individuals, yeah. not, not just because occasionally you'll get some stellar advice from somebody who's a, who's a visionary, but, but actually just sometimes the passion that people have for a subject, for a language... Uh, really, really has an effect, doesn't it? We, um, I could talk to you for hours, Andrew, and indeed have talked to you over the years. We've had a lot of the pandemic doing it. Um, so, you know, what, why should we ever change that? But I'm going to ask you a final question now, and and I want you to try and answer this probably just in two or three sentences, really. And it's a really easy question, okay? <laughs> and all those people out there. Andrew doesn't know what this question is. Before you're thinking, she's emailed it him beforehand. I haven't. I've just written it down on my... I don't Whatsoever. So it's nothing to do with who's going to win, whatever, and things like that. But, so what next for international higher education? Andrew Disbury, what next for international higher education? Where does it go from here? Over to you. Three okay. sentences. I think since 2016 in the UK, it's been easy to despair about the, the, the point of international education because somehow we, we were retrenching behind our own borders in some way, shape or form. But my consistent view since the ref, EU referendum in 2016 has been, and, and, and since other populist uh, ideologies have emerged in, in many countries uh, in that time, is that we only need more international education, not less of it. Uh, because um, we need hearts and minds to not just, it's not just about winning an ideology, it's hearts and minds to really understand the benefit of, uh, of closer ties across the world between people. Um, and we haven't all got to be the same, but we've got to understand each other. You know? And I've had 40 odd years of dialogue with China, and I can only believe that that's a good thing. Um, 
in at a personal level, which then affects systems and politics and policies and permeates upwards. So I, I, that's still, you know, we just need to do more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yes. Uh, it's been a delight to talk to you today. And I'll, uh, I'll hand over to Chris for a, a final few words. No, I mean, that's, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, not just um, a detailed review of, of I suppose, a history in international education that, you know, started when it didn't exist for many people. But I, I think the, the really strong message is um, the need to connect, the need to communicate and the need to, where possible, pay it back and pay it forward. You know, it's, it's a, you're talking very much about a community. You're talking about you know, understanding through engagement. And, and that, as you say, irrespective of ideology, race, creed, gender, whatever it might be, we, can, we need more of that. Um, and I think that's a, that's a truly fantastic message um, for us to take to take forward. So thank you very much indeed. And uh, it's been a great pleasure having you having you on.